Well, before we look into God's word together, let us pray once more. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for this time that we can come and look at your word together. We thank you that you have given us your word, that you have not left us in darkness, but that you have given us light, and it comes from your word. Lord, we pray that we may be strengthened as we read your word this morning. May we experience the Holy Spirit's power and his insight into your word. And may you be with me and not allow me to utter any thing that is wrong or false, but may what I say here be beneficial to all those who listen so that they are built up in the faith. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I have to admit, last year, in my first year of ministry, I uh, got a little bit stressed towards the end of the year. I suddenly started to feel overwhelmed with all the different things that I had to do each week, preparing for Sunday services and Bible studies and all the different activities, plus all the reading that I wanted to do. So my, my weeks were filling up and I wasn't really sure how to control everything that was going on. So about September last year, I started to feel quite stressed each week. But then I worked out a way of controlling my life. And uh, it was one little book on basically on productivity that I read. And basically it's a system of lists where you have lists of all the activities that you want to do and you put them in different categories and so you capture everything that is in your mind, which is what I was trying to do is control my weeks by remembering everything. And I found it very difficult. I've only got so much memory capacity up there. Whereas if I put it all into lists... It was out of my head and I just had to follow the list. And so I have tasks now for, for, that have to be performed each day that I want to do each day. Then there's other tasks that are performed on a particular day of the week. I know I have to do this. It has to happen on the day and it can't really happen any earlier. And then I've got, a, of course, other lists for uh, different meetings that I go to and for uh, just general tasks that I know need to be done at some point when I've got some free time to tackle that list. So it helped me to get a little less stressed because I knew everything was under control. Now, we've been looking at the book of Ezra for a couple of weeks now, and the Israelites have come back from slavery in Babylon to the land of Jerusalem. So they had been in the land, the promised land, but through a series of bad kings, they were punished for their sins, and the Babylonian army came under Nebuchadnezzar, took them in exile to Babylon, where they spent roughly 70 years there, and now they've come back under the leadership of Zerubbabel and Jeshua, the high priest. They've come back to the land, and of course the land is decimated. It's been destroyed. The temple has been destroyed. The town has been destroyed. And so there's lots to do. They've got a massive to-do list as to what they need to do now that they're back in the land. And when you've got a to-do list, the thing that you have to do is work out which are the first priorities. So as I have lists for different days of the week, they're my priorities. I know that on this day I have to do this. It's a first priority. And so the Israelites, when they get back, they've got so much to do, they've got to actually work out what is their first priority. What's their first priority to do? Now that they're back in the land, there's so much to do. There's a wall to rebuild. There's houses to rebuild. There's a temple to rebuild. What do we do first? And that's what I want to look at this morning. As we look at Ezra chapter 3, verses 1 to 6, if you've got a Black Church Pew Bible, it's uh, page 463, page 463. I encourage you to have it open there. Ezra chapter 3, 
We're looking at what is their first priority. And my first main point this morning is that sacrifices are the first priority. If you've got a bulletin there, you can see my four main points this morning. And my first main point is that sacrifices are the first priority. And we see this by what it's described that they do in verse 2. Ezra chapter 3, verse 2, it says, Then Jeshua, son of Josedach, and his fellow priests, and Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, and his associates, began to build the altar of the God of Israel to sacrifice burnt offerings on it in accordance with what is written in the law of Moses and the man of God. Is this the first thing they do in their rebuilding? Well, yes. Verse 6 tells us that this is definitely the first thing that they do. What does it say? Verse 6, On the first day of the seventh month they began to offer burnt offerings to the Lord, though the foundation of the Lord's temple had not yet been laid. They haven't built the the temple yet to worship God correctly. They haven't even laid the foundation for the temple. And what are they doing first? They're making sure the altar is built and offering sacrifices on it. Why are sacrifices so important to these people? Why is this the first thing on their to-do list that they want to put at the top of their to-do list and get started straight away? Well, building an altar and offering sacrifices on it was a significant event in the Old Testament. You see this particularly with the patriarchs. As Abraham moves around, what does he do? He's always building altars and offering sacrifices on it. And it happens again and again. And the Israelites are descendants from Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And so it would seem, yes, they would be following the tradition of their fathers. But is this just some sort of patriotic duty that they make sure that they're offering sacrifices? No, it's because they know, just like Abraham knew, and Isaac and Jacob, that sacrifices atone for sins. That sacrifices are important because they are sinners and need a substitute to pay for their sins. They know the law of God. And they know that when you break the law of God once, the punishment is death. You need to be punished because you've broken the law. And if you do not offer a sacrifice as a propitiation, a a sacrifice of atonement for you instead, then you will have to pay for your sins. And so these Israelites know that we need to start offering sacrifices again because we are sinners and we need our sins covered And so they go about it first as a first priority. They couldn't do it in the land of Babylon, so it stopped. Sacrifices have ceased for all that time. And they know we now have to get back on board because we are sinners. And the law demands that we have a sacrifice for us or we have to pay for our own sins. And how important a priority is this for them? How do we know it's of first importance? Well, we've seen that they do it uh, before everything else, but there's another indication in the text why they see it as so important. Verse 3, they offer these sacrifices, and then in verse 3 it says, despite their fear of the peoples around them, they built the altar on its foundation and sacrificed burnt offerings on it to the Lord, both the morning and evening sacrifices. They do it in spite of the fear of the people around them. Who are these people around them that they're afraid of? Well, there's the enemies of Israel that are still 
around that area, and some of them are actually now living in the land of Israel. So the, you've got Edomites around, you've got Moabites, you've got, um, you've got the Assyrians who have transplanted to, to Samaria, and so that, um, what they're known as Samaritans. These people are not going to be happy that the Israelites are back, because that means they're going to start multiplying, taking over land, and people don't like it when you start taking over land, uh, particularly if they owned it previously. And if they start worshipping and offering sacrifices, they're solidifying themselves in this land. And so these people are going to be very angry that the Israelites are offering these sacrifices. But does that stop the Israelites? No, they know that this is the first priority. This is vital. This is so important that we will do it in spite of the fear that we have of those people around us. So we see the Israelites recognise the need for, to make sacrifices here. But do they jump straight in and start sacrificing and building the altar so they can offer the sacrifices on it? No, we see that the Israelites take time to plan their sacrifices, how they're going to do it. It's like that um, saying that says, he who fails to plan, plans to fail. They need to make these sacrifices correctly. And that's my second main point this morning. Sacrifices are to be done correctly because you can actually make bad sacrifices. It's not a case of if you make a sacrifice, it's always good. No, you can make a bad sacrifice. And we see this again and again in the Old Testament, people making wrong sacrifices. We see it very early. If you have only read the first couple of chapters of the Bible, who are Cain and Abel? Well, Cain and Abel are, of course, the the sons of Adam and Eve, And why does Cain kill Abel? Because Abel's sacrifice was pleasing to God and Cain's was not. Cain made an incorrect sacrifice and he got angry that his brother was favoured by God for making the right sacrifice. And so these people, they want to make sure that they make right sacrifices, that they do it correctly. And how do they know how to do it correctly? How do you know what's a good sacrifice and what's a bad sacrifice? Well, they do it by the book. They've got instructions as to how they're to make sacrifices. And we see them doing this here. In verse uh, verse 2 it says, Then Jeshua, son of Josadak, and his fellow priests, and Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, and his associates, began to build the altar of God of Israel to sacrifice burnt offerings on it in accordance with what is written in the law of Moses, the man of God. They had the law there. The law that Moses had told to the people from God, this is how you're meant to make the sacrifices. We don't read those parts of the Bible very often, um, and or if we do, we sort of skim through, where it talks about how you're meant to make sacrifices. Parts of the Bible, like Leviticus, they, we seem to think, oh, how are these relevant to us today? Well, they're not so relevant to us today as they were to these people here. They valued Leviticus highly because it told them how to make sacrifices correctly. And so we see them doing that. In verse 4 it then says, Then in accordance with what is written, they celebrated the Feast of Tabernacles with the required numbers of burnt offerings prescribed for each day. They made sure they made right sacrifices. They did it by the book. And how do we see that they're following it by the book here? Well, we see a couple of clues as to how they're making right sacrifices here by the book. Uh, Verse 1 we see the involvement of the people. 
Verse 1, it says, When the seventh month came and the Israelites had settled in their towns, the people assembled as one man in Jerusalem. They're making sure that they're involved in making these sacrifices, that other people aren't making the sacrifices for them and they don't really want it to happen. No, they're getting there, making sure they're in Jerusalem, come in from their towns, come in, be here in Jerusalem, make sure we're involved with these sacrifices. How else are they doing it correctly here? Well, they're doing it with the leader's support. Verse 2, Then Jeshua, son of Josadak, and his fellow priests, and Zerubbabel, son of Sheotil, and his associates, began to build the altar of the God of Israel to sacrifice offerings on it in accordance with what is written in the law of Moses, the man of God. Often there's a disconnect between what the people want to do and what the leaders want to do. And sometimes you have bad leaders who don't want to do the right thing. And the people assemble to do the right thing, but the leaders are off on the tangent doing the wrong thing. But the Bible emphasises again and again that the people in charge, the leaders, should be doing the right thing with the people supporting them underneath them. And so we see that happening here. Who's Jeshua, son of Josadak, in verse 2? Well, he's the high priest. It's very important that the high priest is involved here of the sacrifices, and that priests are involved as well. It's the priests who are meant to make the sacrifices. And then we have Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, encouraging them there. Who's Zerubbabel? Well, he's the grandson of Jehoiachin, the last king of, of Judah. So he's part of the royal line. So he's said to be the prince of Judah. So he's, he's not officially in charge. It looks like that there's another Persian uh, leader who's come back with them, who's kind of in charge, but... Zerubbabel's a big figure later on. And so he is supporting them as they make the right sacrifices. What else do we see about how they're wanting to do it correctly by the book? Well, we see that they want to do it on the right spot. Verse 3, despite their fear of the peoples around them, they built the altar on its foundation and sacrificed burnt offerings on it. They build it on the old foundation. Is that important? that they make sure it's in the right spot? It's very important. They weren't sacrificing in Babylon because it was the wrong place. God said, I will tell you where to make sacrifices. And one of the big problems with the previous kings that led to the Babylonian exile is that they offered sacrifices in the wrong spot. When the kingdom split after Solomon, Jeroboam, he set up altars at two different places and encourage the Israelites to sacrifice there instead of Jerusalem to try and disconnect people from the real king, from the king of Judah. And again and again, through, if you read through 1 and 2 Kings, it goes on and on about Jeroboam and his sin of setting up altars in the wrong place. And so it's important that these Israelites, they've come back, they make sure they're sacrificing on the right spot. And then they also, we see that they're doing it correctly by the way they sacrifice at the right times. They make sure they don't just do it whenever they feel like it. No, God has told us when to make sacrifices, and so they do it according to the law. And so what do they do in verse 3? It says, Despite their fear of the peoples around them, they built the altar on its foundation and sacrificed burnt offerings on it to the Lord, both the morning and evening sacrifices. So they're doing the morning and evening ones. Then, in accordance with what is written, they celebrated the Feast of Tabernacles with the required number of burnt offerings prescribed for each day. 
After that, they presented the regular burnt offerings, the new moon sacrifices, and sacrifices for all the appointed sacred feasts of the Lord, as well as those brought as freewill offerings to the Lord. They're making sure they're keeping all the feasts with a required number of sacrifices at those, and also the freewill offerings as people come with their sacrifices that they're just wanting to give. Those are being offered as well. And then we see uh, it comes back and tells us about the, the seventh month sacrifices uh, in verse 6. It says there, On the first day of the seventh month they began to offer burnt offerings to the Lord, though the foundation of the Lord's temple had not yet been laid. The seventh month is a particularly high point. Well, it's basically the climax of the Jewish calendar year. Uh, the first day of the month is basically the new year. And, uh, and so you have the Feast of Trumpets that occurs at that. And then on the 10th day of the seventh month, it is the, um, the Day of Atonement where the high priest went in once a year and offered a sacrifice for the sins of the people. Big high point of the people there. And then from the 15th of the month to the 21st, so you've got a week, it's the Feast of Tabernacles, which is mentioned uh, a little bit earlier in the text there, where they're celebrating the Feast of Tabernacles. And uh, at that, it was, a, it was a big celebration. And everyone lived in tents for that week. So it's also called the Feast of Booths. You may see it translated that in other um, translations of the Bible and other places. The Feast of Booths, where everyone lived in tents to remind them of the way that God cared for them when they were in the wilderness. When they were living in tents, God looked after their forefathers. And so they remember what God has done by living in tents for a week. I love that uh, concept because I hate camping. I think tents are a waste of time. And here we see that it's basically that concept is being portrayed, that you live in a house when you're rich, you live in a tent when you're in the wilderness and poor and needing uh, a God's hand in major uh, provision there. And so it's a bad thing to live in a tent here. And so for a week they endure that hardship and go camping and live in tents for a week. And during that time, they make all these kinds of sacrifices. Uh, the total over the week required by the law was 71 bulls, 15 rams, 105 lambs, and 7 goats. It was a big week that week. You're know, living in tents, but having to offer all these sacrifices as well. Uh, and, but it was a high point of the, of the Jewish calendar year, this, this seventh month. And of course, it, it's also significant, the seventh month, uh, and why they're starting kicking everything off in the seventh month here is partly, I think, because they remember when Solomon built the temple, when he started, uh, dedicated the temple. He did it on the seventh month. That was, he offered an awful lot of, um, animals that week. It would have, um, the aroma would, of, of barbecue would have been phenomenal if you read, um, uh, when Solomon made the sacrifices that week. Uh, if you like the smell of uh, barbecuing meat, that would have been the time to go into Jerusalem. Uh, but yeah, I think there's a significance here that they're starting the sacrifices in the seventh month here, just like Solomon dedicated the temple then. Now, is there any example for us to follow here? Is there any relevance to us as Christians, this part of Ezra chapter 3, Verses 1 to 6, is it just a curiosity for us? Well, I think there is relevance here because it's a type of what we do with Christ. We can learn from these Israelites here with their sacrificing as to what we are to do ourselves when it comes to sacrificing. And so my third main point this morning is that sacrifices are still the first priority. 
just like they were the first priority for the Israelites, they're the first priority for everyone in this room and in everyone alive today. Sin is still a problem. It's not like humans have evolved to a sinless state here and the Israelites were, you know, dirty, sinful people. And so they had to offer sacrifices, but we don't anymore. No, sin is still a problem. We read the law of God and we realise how far we fall short of it. And then we read that those who fall short must die for their sins. They must experience God's wrath. And so then we start to think, well, how do I get out of that? How do I not die for my sins? And that's where we think about sacrifices. Is there a substitute for us? A sacrifice that can take away our sin. And we want to embrace that sacrifice if we find it, despite what people may think, just like these Israelites. They embrace the sacrifice that would take away their sin, despite the fear of others. And so often today, we do that. We embrace the sacrifice that God has revealed in his word, even when others will persecute us because of it. They will look down upon us, they will sniff at us, they will ridicule us. And we do it in spite of fear of those people. So then the question is, how do we do it correctly? Sacrifices are still the first priority. They should be the top of your to-do list because you know you're a sinner. How do we know we offer the right sacrifice? Because people have all different ways of overcoming sin. So that it needs to be done correctly. So my fourth main point this morning is that sacrifices are still to be done correctly. Just as the Israelites wanted to make sure they offer the right sacrifice, we need to as well. Because some people around the world are still trying to get right with God by offering animal sacrifices. It doesn't happen so much here in Australia, but there are people all around the world who are still doing sacrifices, cutting chickens' necks and animals' goats' necks and things like this to try and get right with the God that they think is up there. And many people think that if they offer the sacrifice of their good works, that will make them right with God. If I'm a good person, if I don't murder, if I don't steal, if I don't disobey my parents, if I love my neighbour as I love myself, and I do it roughly 51% of the time, and 49% of the time I can fail, but if I have 51%, then that will be the sacrifice that will atone for my sins. Is that a correct sacrifice? Well, if we sacrifice by the book, just like the Israelites did, we know that good works never take away sin. The only sacrifice that is the correct sacrifice is Jesus Christ. He is the only one who can take away our sins. He is the only substitute that we can have so that we don't pay for our own sins because we know that on the cross he wasn't just being an example of someone who is persecuted to the end and can suffer well. No, he is there hanging on the cross as a representative, as a substitute for us so that we don't have to pay for our sins because Christ has paid them for us. That is the sacrifice by the book. That's the correct type of sacrifice. 
And so we can follow the Israelites in the way that they make sure they're offering the correct sacrifice. Just as they made sure that they were involved in the sacrifice, they all assembled as one man to make sure the sacrifices are offered on their part, so we should be involved in our sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Other people can't accept the sacrifice of Jesus for you. No, you have to be involved yourself. You have to be involved in accepting the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And how do you do that? How is Jesus your sacrifice? Well, you repent of your sins and you just believe that Jesus died for you. You know the wages of sin is death. And so you know that someone has to die if your sins are to be, the punishment is to be met. And so you believe that Jesus died for you. And that's faith. You trust that Jesus died. And that is offering Jesus as your sacrifice. You don't have to be involved there at that time, making sure that Jesus has the crown of thorns put on his head and up on the cross. No, you can't do that. It's been and gone. But if you believe today, you present Jesus as a sacrifice to God. And you can do it with the leader's approval, just as we see Jeshua and Zerubbabel there approving of the sacrifices. We do the sacrifice of Jesus with the leader's approval. Who are the leaders today? Who's our high priest? Well, it's Jesus Christ. And he approves of you offering him as a sacrifice for you. And who's our prince of Judah today? Zerubbabel's long gone. Who do we have? We have Jesus Christ. He's both high priest and he's both prince of Judah. And he approves of your sacrifice, offering him to pay for your sins. And then we also learn how to do it correctly here, that we're meant to do it at the right time and in the right place. Just as these Israelites said, we need to do it here in Jerusalem at this spot. And we need to do it now. When the morning and evening sacrifices need to happen and the different feasts, we need to do it at the right time. And so it is today as well. You need to offer it in the right place and the right time. When's the right place and the right time? Well, the right place and the right time is now, in this age. Because there is an age coming when it will no longer be the right time and the right place. When Jesus returns, or if you die, that's the end. It is no longer a sacrifice that you can make, because you won't want to. If you haven't made the sacrifice here in this life, you won't be given an opportunity in the next life because you won't feel like it anymore. You won't want to offer that sacrifice. I just want to read you a section from from a, a, a call to spiritual reformation by Don Carson. I'm reading through with this uh, with one of the members of this church. And uh, we came to uh, the end of one of the chapters the other week and it spoke about hell and this person was just struck about the description of people in hell and their persistent rebelliousness. Often we have this idea of people in hell will be there crying out and saying, I repent, I'm sorry for my sins, God let me out of here. But that's not true at all. The Bible never describes people in hell like that. How does the Bible describe people in hell? Well, I'll read from Don Carson's words here. He says, The final picture is not a pretty one. 
Some people think of hell as a place where sinners will be crying out for another chance, begging for the opportunity to repent, with God somehow taking on a tough guy stance and declaring, sorry, you had your chance too late. But the reality is infinitely more sobering. There is no evidence anywhere in the Bible that there is any repentance in hell. The biblical pictures suggest that evil and self-centeredness persist and persist, and so does the judgment. Men and women wantonly refuse to acknowledge God as God. They will not confess his essential rightness. They will not own his just requirements. They will not give up their perpetual desire to be the centre of the universe. They will not accept that they are guilty of rebellion. They will not accept forgiveness on the ground that God himself makes provision for sinners in the sacrifice of his own son. This is the right time and this is the right place because in the next world it will be the wrong time and it will be the wrong place and you will not be able to offer the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. What is the priority of your life? What's at the top of your to-do list? There are many things in this life demanding your attention day by day, all the things that you need to do. What's at the top of your list? Is at the top of your list getting right with God? You know you're a sinner, if you're honest, that you've broken God's laws many times. Do you want to get right with him? Is that at the top of your list? Do you want to make the sacrifice correctly? Or do you want to offer something else, like your good works? You don't want to offer Jesus. No, that can't be enough. You want to offer yourself and what you do. Or do you want to sacrifice by the book and offer Jesus? Do you want to be involved in getting rid of your sin, just like these Israelites assembled as one man to be involved in making the sacrifices? And do you want to do it with the prince and the high priest's stamp of approval? Well, then you need to offer the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And do you want to do it at the right time in the right place? Well, today, if you have not already done it, is the right time and the right place. Offer Jesus today as your sacrifice by trusting that he died for you. Let us speak with him now. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that you do accept a sacrifice for our sins. You had no need to do so. You could have sent us all straight to hell as soon as we sinned once. But in your mercy, you accept a substitute instead. And that substitute is Jesus Christ. There is no other because sin demands death. Lord, we do thank you so much for sending Jesus. And we pray that he is the first on our to-do list, the first priority to accept him as our sacrifice by faith, by trusting that he died for us. Lord, we pray that everyone in this room has accepted Jesus, that they have believed he died for them. And so they do not have to die for their sins because they are at one with you. They have atoned for their sins with Jesus Christ. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.